Hello, this is Monocle Reads. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is a journalist and The Guardian's foreign leader writer, Tanya Brannigan. She's been with The Guardian since 2000, and from 2008 until 2015, she lived in Beijing as the paper's foreign correspondent for China. Her new book is Red Memory, Living, Remembering and Forgetting China's Cultural Revolution. Through conversations with individuals who lived through the horrific decade of Mao, the book gives an insightful look at the time and its memories, which have been silenced for 40 years. Tanya Brannigan, welcome to Monaco Reads. Hello. It's lovely to have you here. And this book is so rich with detail and stories and trauma in lots of ways. You write, it's impossible to understand China today without understanding the Cultural Revolution. Subtract it and the country makes no sense. It's Britain without its empire, the United States without the Civil War. And I wonder if you could just go into that and just, I suppose, give us Cultural Revolution 101. (laughs) Yes. I mean, it's extraordinary because it's such a huge, complex, multifaceted event. And so it's very hard to understand. And yet it is this pivot point in Chinese history. So Mao unleashed it in 1966, this era of violence and turmoil. And it ran until just after his death in 1976. And in those 10 years, it rippled out right across the country. It touched everybody from the topmost leaders, so both of his heirs apparent would die in this decade. But we also sort of saw families in remote provinces being wiped out as well. We saw two million people died and then tens of millions were hounded. So it was a devastating time. It was really at heart Mao's reassertion of his absolute supremacy. It was a a kind of power grab after a point at which he had felt threatened So in 1958, he'd launched his Great Leap Forward, which was this sort of hubristic attempt to transform the country's industry and agriculture through collectivisation at breakneck speed. And it was absolutely disastrous. Um, Tens of millions of people died as a result in, in the Great Famine that followed. And it was reined in by pragmatists in the party. And Mao was very shaken, really, by this sense of opposition. He wanted to reassert himself He did also have this kind of ideological zealous vision of what China should be. He obviously wasn't going to be able to realise that in the economic realm in the way he'd hoped. And so increasingly he sort of turns towards ideological purity, cultural purity. So it's an attempt to remove his rivals unquestionably. But what's distinct about this compared to previous purges within the party is that he turns outside the party, he goes out to the masses and he enlists the masses and particularly young people Uh, really children in many cases, sort of 13, 14-year-olds, who become the Red Guards, these sorts of political vigilantes. And so it becomes this mass campaign, and that's why it's so devastating, because it's not just sort of imposed from the top down, it is also this sort of upsurge that Mao sets off. And with that comes so many things. You obviously have the kind of the political zealotry of the era from these people who've been raised with these revolutionary ideals of purity and sacrifice and struggle, first and foremost. But you also have inevitably the kind of personal grudges and survival instinct of people and all of these different things that feed into it and so that it really kind of burns out of control. And we see these very personal betrayals where people are turning on people they work with, they're turning on their friends and their neighbours and they're even turning on people within their own household 
husbands and wives denouncing each other, for example. So it's absolutely devastating. And there are around three years of this intense sort of turmoil. And then after that, even Mao sort of decides he's now back in charge, this has to be reined in. And the Red Guards are sort of pulled back, really. Um, The military and so forth are in control again. But we then see this long period that while it's more stable and bureaucratic in some ways, is still very deadly and is full of these sort of political conflicts and currents going back and forth. So nobody knows where they stand. And I think, again, that's one of the things that's very distinctive about it is that to outsiders, I think people so often assume it's going to be a case of victims and perpetrators, but in fact that could shift very quickly. You were a victim one day, a perpetrator the next, or vice versa. Mm-hmm. And so it's very difficult to keep any sense of stability, any understanding of what the rules were, in a sense, where the lines were. And so it was devastating for so many people. You you write that, that people went to bed with Mao, they dreamt about Mao, they had their breakfast with Mao, they had their first cigarette with Mao, whatever it was. How did he attain that godlike status and manage to to bend people to his will so thoroughly? Well, Mao had obviously led the party uh, to victory. He'd brought it to power in 1949. Um, He was not only a very sort of forceful personality and a very, very wily political operator, but also he had this great grasp of rhetoric and he was very good at using ambiguity to sort of further his case. And so he had this sort of status in the ideas in the in the eyes of the people, but then it was burnished through this personality cult that developed. Um, Lin Biao, the man who sort of would uh, become his heir apparent later and then uh, also die because he'd fallen after he fell from favour. Um, was one of the people who was really central to creating this cult around Chairman Mao with the little red book of his sayings and so forth. And so by the time the Cultural Revolution comes, as you say, people revered Mao and particularly, I think, sort of children who'd grown up in that environment. There was a song of the time, as one of my interviewees told me, uh, Mother and Father are dear, but Chairman Mao is dearer. And you were meant to place these ideals of revolution above even family ties because they were more important. Personal matters were ultimately not important. What mattered was the politics, the cause, the purity of achieving this great socialist utopia. It just seems extraordinary that a whole nation would would buy into that. But, I mean, you you explore it in the book. And so looking at the structure of the book, you're there, you're you're the foreign correspondent for for China. What then led you to start asking these questions about a period that really has been airbrushed from history, really? I obviously had a sort of general grasp of what the Cultural Revolution was, but I think I had sort of thought about it very much as a historical issue. And then I went for lunch um, with an investor I knew when we were sort of talking about politics and things. And then over coffee, he just mentioned that a few years before he'd driven to this village that was just outside Beijing to try and find the body of his wife's father, who had killed himself following persecution by Red Guards in 1966. And they got there and the farmers were actually quite friendly and quite kind. You know, they remembered his father-in-law, they talked a bit about him. But when they explained why they'd gone there, the farmers basically said, well, you know, how on earth are we supposed to know where his bones are? Because there are so many bodies around here. And that story really stuck with me, not because it was the worst thing 
I had heard about the Cultural Revolution by any means. You know, there, there were so many atrocities in that era. I think it was the fact it was so close, um, the fact that it it was sort of within a, a touching distance, it seemed, suddenly. It didn't really seem like history anymore, and it just made me aware quite how close it was in time, you know, very, very much in living memory, um, but also really aware um, of how commonplace it was and aware that there was so much there that people just weren't talking about, and yet it was so close. And once you see that, it's very hard to unsee it, I think. I mean, I, I um, he encouraged me to go and uh, meet this painter who had painted this wonderful series of portraits of people who'd been caught up in the Cultural Revolution, including his father-in-law. Uh, and I wrote a story on that. I spoke to various relatives. And I really planned to leave it there because obviously I was covering day-to-day news. It was a very busy beat. I had no really desire to sort of go and look back at history but it just seemed to me every story I did kept taking me back to the cultural revolution in some form or another so you'd speak to a tycoon and it would sort of turn out really that the drive came from this great upheaval in the 60s that sort of need to kind of struggle as an individual and kind of go out and grasp what you could You'd be speaking to somebody about the way that sort of family relationships were fractured and they'd be talking about the impact that the Cultural Revolution had had within their family and how that had sort of shaped the whole relationships. You'd be talking to somebody about politics and so forth and it it just became clear there were sort of so many aspects of it that were still around everywhere. And yet it was this strange thing where they were everywhere and nowhere. So although it's not a wholly taboo subject it's always been policed and it's become much more so over the years and then the other thing that was very interesting about the time I was there was that there was suddenly this point when other people were obviously having this desire to return to the era in some way to think about the era after this long silence because of course it hasn't just been the political control which has stopped discussion of the era Actually, one of the things that's been most potent has been the trauma that people endured. Many people simply cannot bring themselves to speak about it. And what was striking uh, about the period when I was there is that people started to come forward and talk about what they had done as Red Guards. People started to come forward and talk about what happened to them in the era. And what unites the people in my book is that they are all people who have chosen to keep that memory of the Cultural Revolution alive in some way in a society that doesn't want to. Mm. You speak to to youngsters who tell you about being part of the the Red Guard and the the so-called shock troops. Give us a, a sense of some of those stories. I think what was really important to me to capture was that It's a time that people have very mixed feelings about. It's a time of horrors, and there clearly is huge trauma there. But there is also quite a lot of nostalgia uh, for the Cultural Revolution. And even among people who are very disturbed by it and who want to recall it in part to make sure that people know what the dangers are, that they're not ever drawn sort of back into similar events. In fact, when they talk about it, the people who sort of talk about it most honestly say, you know, there, there were times when it was exciting. It felt like a kind of freedom. And I felt it was really important to reflect that. Uh, that for all the atrocities, there was also, among young people, a sense 
that they were doing something important. This is part of why they were doing it. They were doing Mao's work. They had a freedom that they'd never had before. You know, the schools were closed, the universities were closed. We're talking about a very sort of stratified and controlled society. And suddenly you were told that you could criticise leaders, you could criticise the teachers who were in charge of you. I mean, obviously not criticise Mao, that was never going to be on the agenda. But suddenly there was what people talk about as being a big democracy. You know, there was a point where people thought there was a kind of freedom there for a while at least, Mm. albeit at at terrible cost. And the red card I begin with, I thought what was really fascinating talking to her was that although she drew back from the violence that she saw around her, the terrible violence that red guards meted out, she drew back from it. But she sort of said at the time, you know, she was asking herself, am I just not strong enough to go through this? She felt it was wrong. But the force of that moment and of the sort of the revolutionary culture around her was so great that she also found herself thinking, well, maybe I'm just not revolutionary enough, maybe I'm not pure enough, maybe I'm not sort of political enough in the way that I should be. And it's so hard for us to imagine, I think, what it must have been like to live through that time. It's very easy to stand outside and judge it. And I really wanted people, I think, to ask themselves, what might we all have done in that situation Would we have really been so sure what was right or wrong? Because I think you can always assume you're going to be on on the side of good, that you do the right thing. And, of course, in reality, history shows us that in most situations, most of us don't. That's certainly not unique to China. Yeah. You speak to an octogenarian composer who talks about how culture, well, what happened to culture during that period. Tell us more. Yes, I mean, it's a strange thing because it involves so much death and devastation and violence and things. And yet this also was genuinely a cultural revolution in the sense it was meant to transform the culture of China from its arts right through to sort of social structures and culture in that broader sense. And so we saw this great period of destruction in which many fine musicians, um, including one of his teachers, were killed or sort of hounded to their deaths, ended up killing themselves. We saw the destruction of artworks, books were pulped. I mean, one of the interviews, he didn't even make it into the book, but she, you know, talked about this great mountain, seeing this great mountain of piled up books all ready to be destroyed because everybody was basically supposed to be reading, you know, Chairman Mao instead. It wasn't just that it was kind of bourgeois content per se, but even the fact it was foreign Uh, The Red Guards were doing things like sort of smashing up artworks, burning sort of family genealogies, all this kind of thing. So it was this great period of destruction. And in fact, I mean, the opening shot of the Cultural Revolution, as bizarre as it sounds to us, it starts with a critique of a a play that Mao gets somebody to write. And it's it's basically, that's the sort of the, the first inkling in retrospect of when the Cultural Revolution is beginning. And Mao took the culture very seriously. So he wanted to remake culture and we then saw this era of art which has often been mocked. I mean, a very famous Chinese scholar Bajin said, you know, there was there was only one flower in the garden of the Cultural Revolution and that was made of plastic. Another joke has it that there were 800 million people watching eight model operas because it was such a sort of restricted cultural palette. But you did see, I mean, firstly, it was a kind of a rupture that created, as for this composer, the the rupture in the kind of country's culture then created this immense hunger for culture afterwards and it came roaring back with this great force. I mean, this is why you have this incredible sort of generation of filmmakers who pour out of China. Subsequently, you see this amazing sort of explosion of contemporary art and things and some of the force of that is the fact that people have been denied it for Mm. so long. 
but also, you know, the culture that was made at the time, some of it deserves to be taken seriously. A lot of it was awful. There's no there's no doubt about that. But there were things that people responded to. So, for example, the fact that you had these quite forceful female characters who might be sort of a, a party secretary sort of taking a lead role rather than just some sort of fey maiden who was kind of pining away for her lover to turn up or something particularly the fact that they were very serious about taking the culture to the masses. Now, that, of course, was for political reasons. Mao sort of saw artists and scholars. He made it very clear long before the Cultural Revolution, the point was to serve the party and to serve politics. It wasn't to create wonderful art for the sake of it. You have to be sending a message home. But there was a real attempt to get art out to the masses. And what's so fascinating about talking to Wang Xilin, who's an amazing composer who people can hear, by the way, if you go on YouTube and look him up, what he said was that even though... He lost out on so much. I mean, he was almost killed in the era. He spent years sort of suffering in the countryside. But he did say as well, you know, there was this really serious attempt to get art out to the masses. And actually, if you hadn't had those model operas being performed in villages and things all over the place, here were these people who never otherwise would have understood Beethoven or Debussy or all these other things that sort of might have come along in its wake. And so even he, who'd suffered so greatly actually thinks that out of the Cultural Revolution, there were some really interesting developments culturally, Mm. albeit, of course, at absolutely enormous human cost. You work with a a psychotherapist who's treating trauma in the book. She discovers her own family has horrific stories from the revolution that she didn't know about. And I wonder how far young people in China are aware of their past and what happened to their family. And is there a sense of of generational trauma, of it being kind of scored into your DNA of epigenetic conflict within one? I mean, this is what's so striking, that it feels as if the transgenerational trauma has been so profound. Uh, And of course, many people in China were traumatised even before the Cultural Revolution came along because they'd had these years of invasion by foreign powers and so forth. They'd had the Great Leap Forward and the famine that followed. So it's this great accumulation of disasters that scarred so many people so deeply. And the Cultural Revolution was sort of the last and and the worst of them in in so many ways. But at the same time, part of its power, I think, comes from the fact that it's not spoken about Many people, like the psychotherapist I speak to, sort of really were not aware of any family history. Other people quite commonly have, you know, friends of mine have sort of said to me, well, I know something happened in my family, but nobody will tell me what it is, essentially. And then, of course, there are many young people who really don't have any idea what was involved. So there was this sort of outcry when I was there because a a group of students had done these graduation pictures in which they'd mocked up what's called a struggle session, one of the denunciations that took place with them sort of posing in these dunces caps that used to be put on people to humiliate them and and so forth. And people were saying, well, this is terrible, you know, how can they do this? And of course, it, it was clearly an offensive thing to do in a sense, but these are people who really have not been brought up with any understanding of what the Cultural Revolution was. And I thought... You know, what they did was really reflective not so much of them as of a society that has not allowed them to understand that, to have any sense of sort of what it encompassed. How then is the Cultural Revolution relevant to the China we see today and can we compare Mao to Xi Jinping? So I think firstly, it really is the pivot point where China moved from this vision of a social utopia of sort of Maoism towards this era of the free market, much more individualistic and so forth. And that's left its mark on the politics, on the economy, on the culture. It left China with a very deep fear of turmoil 
which the party, although, of course, in a sense, responsible for these years, it's also positioned itself as the sort of the bulwark of stability, basically. We have to keep tight control of everything because look what happens when we don't. It just explodes. You know, we're here to keep you safe. That's why we've got to clamp down on protest. And that's been very, very potent for many years. Less so now, of course, because fewer people remember it. But that's been a very sort of major part of their legitimacy, in a sense. It also helped to sort of justify the turn away from Mao to the market, saying, well, you know, we all suffered terribly. Let's go and do something else now. This is the point at which it can change. Even on a very pragmatic level, actually, because they sent all these young people down to the countryside in the later years of the Cultural Revolution and they missed out on all this education, they had to do something with them when they eventually came back to the cities. They hadn't really got jobs for them. And that was one of the factors which lay behind the encouragement of small-scale entrepreneurs that obviously led to China's extraordinary growth story. So on so many levels, these things play out. And then I think in terms of the politics today, I mean, what's so striking is that in Xi Jinping, you have somebody who suffered greatly in the Cultural Revolution. His father was a revered revolutionary. He'd fallen from power and fallen from sort of grace and was struggled against in those years. Um, his She's half-sister killed herself, we believe, because of the suffering that the family was going through. And she himself was sent down to the countryside to sort of labour in these terrible conditions for years. And it's clearly deeply shaped his perceptions. But whereas his father and other party elders came back after the Cultural Revolution, were rehabilitated and said, right, the point now is that we've got to cage power. We can't have just one strong man at the top. We've got to make sure there are some sort of guardrails here. And so they introduced a much more collectivised style of leadership with sort of informal term limits and all of these things. She has just thrown all of that out of the window. So he's now leader of the country indefinitely. He's into a third term. We don't know how long he's going to be there. Um, he has really more power than any Chinese leader since Mao. He's got very firm control of sort of all the apparatus. You know, there's a. it's not first among equals anymore in the way it was you know, in the last sort of administration, for example. He's definitely not a Maoist figure in the sense of enjoying turmoil in the way that Mao did, because there's no doubt that Mao loved sort of chaos and disorder at some level, as long as he was ultimately in charge. And in that sense, actually, you could argue Donald Trump is a much more Maoist figure because he's someone who sort of loves to appeal to the kind of popular id and cause disruption. She is much more about order and discipline and the need to be in control. And I think that feels to me very much like a lesson that he has taken from those years and from the sufferings of his family. Tanya, absolutely fascinating. And I think for anybody who wants to understand China, and right now we all need to understand China, this is an absolute must read. It's called Red Memory, Living, Remembering and Forgetting China's Cultural Revolution. It's by Tanya Brannigan and it's published by Faber and Faber. You've been listening to Monocle Reads, thanks to the producer Nora Hull. You can download this show and previous episodes from our website, Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.